And now, this is the DDT Wrestling Podcast with DC Matthews and Doc Manson. Well, my word, what a week it's been in the world of professional wrestling. I am DC Matthews at DC Matthews NAI, joined as always by Doc Manson, Doc Manson, at Doc Manson, Doc Manson, Doc Manson. Doc Manson, how are you today, Doc Manson? I am Doc Manson, and I'm feeling fine. How are Uh, you, DC Matthews, at DC Matthews NAI? I'm doing well as well. We were debating, uh, we had a couple of different options for this particular episode. Well, well, well. And as we were discussing them, you got a serious uh, bit of thunder and lightning over there at Manson Manor, and I believe that decided it for us. For today, my friends, we are going to take a look at the life and times of our dearly departed... Undertaker. I'm glad we shared that moment of silence together. Uh, I have compiled a master document full of all sorts of interesting ideas. Uh, I can't wait for you to figure out how to obstruct this one, Doc Manson. Okay. Um, I would like to talk about Giant Gonzalez and nothing else. This entire episode. <laughs> oh, trust me, we're gonna get there because I I think we both would have a lot to say. That is my first Undertaker memory. Is Giant it's a good Gonzales. one? It's a good one, that's for sure. So we will get to all of the furry outfitness that we can handle. Um, but I I wanted to ask you this question before we started, and then I wanted to ask you this question after. Uh, when you think of the professional wrestling pantheon. A lot of people discuss the Mount Rushmore. I don't want to necessarily talk about the Mount Rushmore of talents. But when you're thinking about that upper echelon of talent, where does Undertaker rank to you in terms of the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop that don't stop? What would you say? Um, Honestly? Man. The Undertaker is a unique sort of entry, I think, into the world of professional wrestling. He's definitely one of the strongest characters, like, you know, the parlance that people like to use, you know, in professional wrestling circles is gimmick. Forgive me, I guess, for, you know, uttering that here. But but certainly the gimmick of The Undertaker was incredible. It was a great idea. It was a great thing. That, you know, the character is so good that I honestly think almost anyone could have played that character and gotten it over. But, now this is now speaking to, I think, the talents of The Undertaker that we got. I I, I think that that gimmick would have given anybody a good year or two. You know what I mean? Okay. Thank you for adding that. Because I was like... I'm going to disagree with you perhaps more vehemently than I have ever disagreed (laughs) with you before if you think that anyone could have gotten that gimmick over long term. A year or two, absolutely. year or two, absolutely. Not long term. That's my point. The fact that this guy, uh, Mark 
what's his last name? Is it Callaway? Callaway. He the fact that he what is it? Twenty seven years. Is that what it is as the Undertaker? Yeah. So I, I that is mind boggling to me. The fact that he was and here's the thing. Okay, so here's maybe part of the secret of his success, right? He evolved. He changed that character. It was always that dark sort of brooding thing, with the exception of maybe, you know, you know, the big evil period there. It was it was a little bit different. But everything where the Undertaker changed through ministry, uh, you know, and then coming back as the Undertaker at WrestleMania 20, like with a dead man gimmick again, like a lot of that was similar. But I don't know. He still managed to change it just enough that it stayed fresh. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so going back to your original question, where does he rank in the Pantheon? Uh, again, one of the, I'd say probably the best gimmick of all time. If, if in the DDT awards at year end, if we wanted to have a category, you know, for best gimmick, it should be presented by the Undertaker. You know what I mean? Like that is, I think, the top bar for that. And then you want to talk about a guy who also was a great talent in the ring. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he is the best technical wrestler of all time. I mean, Jim Ross was very fond of calling him, oh, the best pure striker in the business. And even still, I don't know if whether or not he really was uh, a best pure striker either. But you know what? For a big guy, he could move. Uh, he was incredibly agile. He had a, a varied move set. Let us, I mean, when he used to... Um, Geez, what was that called when he would walk across the top rope? Um, old school. Old school. I, and again, like, that wasn't. It wasn't like he was calling it that in 1991. It no, became no. old school. And and what I will say, you know, I want to jump in here and agree with you pretty much across the board. An all time gimmick. Like he took something that should have been nine months long, right, and stretched it. To 27 years. And I'll, I'll, I'll just disagree with your use of the word stretched because that implies, you know, you know, too much, too little butter over too much toast or whatever, what have you. That's not the case. He, no. for the most part, kept it pretty fresh. Yes, but what I'm saying is we've had wrestling trash men. We've had wrestling plumbers. We've had wrestling prisoners. We've had wrestling cops. We've had firemen all across the board. This was one of those here is a job. And essentially, now granted, it was an interesting job, you know what I mean, being an actual undertaker and having the funeral parlor segment. And we'll get into the impact of one Paul Bear to oh, this yeah. whole thing. Key, um, key component to those early years. But yes, you know, I would say all-time gimmick. Um, all-time what, big man wrestler. All-time talent. Not necessarily the best wrestler, but I will give him credit. I remember vividly. Survivor Series 1996, he comes back from one of his absences to wrestle Mankind. He's breaking out the what would become the ministry look. He's been wearing black, just black. He's got the tear sort of thing. Um, and all of a sudden, he's breaking out legitimate MMA submission moves. Like, he breaks out a cross-arm breaker. Nobody was doing that in wrestling at that time. There was like one or two guys who were doing that sort of thing. This is before Ken Shamrock showed up. This is, you know, all of a sudden he's breaking out these things. And for a guy that size to dive over the top rope as often as he did 
was just and, you ridiculous. Know, and we're here sitting here discussing now The Undertaker for going on eight minutes. And, you know, we're talking about how great he was. We haven't even mentioned the later half of his career, the streak at WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about, for a guy that we both admitted, probably not the best technical wrestler of all time, but a very solid big man, probably one of the best big men of all time. And for him to go on to have what, I mean, at least arguably, maybe even undisputably, but at least arguably, some of the best matches at a string of WrestleManias, you know, through the, those those mm-hmm. the, those twenty uh, years there, uh, I think is a, nobody else. I mean, Mister WrestleMania, Shawn Michaels did that, but mm-hmm. but not not in the same degree. Not to become an tr- attraction unto itself. When the streak died, it meant something. When when the DDT poll happens, and we talk about what is your favorite match of all time. More often than not, you hear Taker, Michaels, 25 or 26. You know what I mean? It kind of goes as a package deal. Um, And again, I have six pages of notes. It is, I was shocked to learn some of these things. The number of just gimmick matches that we now take for granted that started due to The Undertaker is is just mind-boggling. So all right, that's th- all, right, all right, yeah, I was going to say, you've got me, my interest is peaked. Let's Let, dive let's, into this here. Yeah, let's go back um, to the beginning, though. Let's go back to... when. Okay, just take a guess for me. If you had to pick... Now, I know you might have looked at the documents. I, you know, I did share them with you. When, oh, did you? Oh, okay, good. When did he start wrestling? If you had to pick the year, what year do you think he started wrestling? Wait, are we talking about The Undertaker? Because I know no. that's 1990. But no, if you're talking I'm about talking Mark Calloway. About, I'm talking about Texas Red. Which was the his first wrestler name, Texas Red. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go ahead and say, um, 1986, 84. Wow, he's he was 19 years old. He was born in 1965. 19 years old, you know, he begins wrestling in. in as Texas Red, obviously down kind of in the southern areas, he's a Texas guy. Just to put that in context, WrestleMania began in 1985. So Mr. Re- one of the two Mr. WrestleManias began wrestling before action. You know, he's been wrestling almost as long as WrestleManias existed. I'm That's just amazing. Gonna, that that I'm just, alone is amazing. I'm just going to read you some names because he's got some of the great all-time gimmick names. He was Texas Red. He was the master of pain. Not the author of pain, the master of pain. So I suppose in the rankings of the generals of pain, master is probably above author? I would think so. Where do you think, like, the repo man of pain is? (laughs) Uh, Below author... And, and what about like postman of pain or like Well that gets credit for alliteration, the postman Ooh. of pain. True, true. Um he was the Punisher, and then I believe he wrestled in Japan for a couple of matches as the Punisher Dice Morgan. Dice Morgan. That is that is another name that I could have seen Dolph Ziggler going with. 
That Dice Morgan is a name that I would not be surprised if I went back and looked through my SmackDown video games from high school and college. I would not be surprised if I had created a wrestler named Dice Morgan. That's it's, it's fairly appropriate. Um, and then you know the first time he came to major uh, knowledge, he was Mean Mark Callis. In okay. WCW, uh, managed by one Paul E. Dangerously. Hmm. Okay. And I, I mention this because the rumor is it was Paul Heyman, while working for WCW, who got on the phone and called someone in WWF to say, I've got this guy here you might want to take a look at. His name's Mark Calloway. So it's entirely possible whether or not we ever hear that story on a Hall of Fame speech or anything. Um, you know, I just again, I was reading, I was in love with his Wikipedia page because there's all these things. So November 1990, uh, some TV tapings. We are introduced to, well, actually, we're not introduced because I don't think these things ever saw the light of day. But his name originally, as most people, well, I don't know how many people know, but a lot of people know, his name was Kane. The Undertaker. Right. And they decided to shelve that and wound up saving it for about seven years until his brother decided to leave dental school and come <laughs> come along. Hey, now, now you're jumping ahead. I am. I am, I am. 1990 Survivor Series, uh, you know, not originally managed, another piece of trivia, not originally managed by Paul Bear, managed by Brother Love. I don't know why. I don't know why they thought that let's pair Brother Love, the red-faced Southern preacher, with this guy, the Undertaker. That's, I don't really... That is an odd pairing, I suppose. It, it, you know, but again, Paul Bear, and we're going to have many times to talk about him, but then you get the whole thing, because that's when the funeral parlor uh, talk show segments happen. That's hey, wait a when... Minute. So you're jumping ahead a little bit here, I think. When he debuted uh at the Survivor series, that was his debut, right? That was he had so according to Wikipedia, he had wrestled on some TV tapings, I think in like dark matches as Kane the Undertaker, but the first time most WWF fans were introduced to him was the 1990 Survivor Series. He's the mystery partner for like Million Dollar Man's team. I remember elimin- that. I remember the bill. I remember Ted DiBiase, uh, DiBiase rather, uh, unveiling the Undertaker. Yes, and you have this yes. weird guy he- with this giant tie that almost looked like an ascot or something. It was so bad. Unless I'm misremembering, I assume he had no. that at that time. No, that was it. That was the original look, was the big black and gray tie, the gray gloves, the gray boot things. You know, his hair is red, so he's got this kind of wetted down red hair. Whatever he's happened got... to the red hair? He dyed it. He dyed it. He dyed it. You know, he... again, not wanting to jump too far ahead, but it br- he came back to it during the big evil phase. But Okay. But, um, but yeah, so yes, so he makes his debut. Coco Beware is the first televised victim of the Tombstone Piledriver, which wow. is probably why he got into the Hall of Fame. Um, and then he and Dusty Rhodes, I believe, fought to like a count out. So, you know, Undertaker didn't, wasn't the sole survivor of that match. 
just took out dusty roads and that was about it. Yeah. But the whole idea was, you know, he was, he was truly a master of pain. You know, the whole idea was he didn't sell. That's what the whole sitting up thing came from is you'd hit him with a move and he'd immediately sit up like it didn't hurt. And I mean, let's just talk about that move, the the, the sit up, like talk about a truly iconic sort of just imagery of wrestling, WWE, whatever, like you, anybody who's even like a casual fan, I feel like knows that, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's just, I don't know. When I was a kid, it would send chills down my spike. You could see the goosebumps, you know, eight year old Doc Manson sitting there watching. Let's just even talk about if I were to lay down on this floor. And you told me you're to saying sit. <laughs> you don't quite have the core uh, strength for that. I have to like I rock back, like you know my feet go in the air and then I kick myself up into like I don't know that I could lay flat and actually sit up like that. So you know, so okay, everybody understands that you know Shawn Michaels or, or the kip up is you know an incredibly athletic move a, a way of getting back to your feet but you here are now arguing that equally perhaps as impressive is the core strength required to go from flat on your back to sitting straight up i will put the headphones down and try it right now just to see if i can manage it <laughs> if we need to uh you know i, I would be i would be I'm the wrestler you. who who did the slowly rolling over dragging himself by the arms to the ropes and then pulling himself up. I would do the hoist up. That would and, be... And that wouldn't the, be after, like, taking a major move. This would be, like... No, when one you arm rolled, drag. One arm No, no, no. Drag. This would be, like, when you were, like, rolling into the ring, like, trying to get under the bottom rope, up on the apron, under the bottom rope, just getting into the ring at the beginning of the match, right? This is why, slight aside, this is why I'm always so impressed with all of the people who can, like, you know, Brock Lesnar does it, Jason Jordan does it, but even the guys, like, who can, like, you know, kind of jog and then dive into the ring. Like, I've always imagined that, you know, like, Edge used to do the thing where he would dive under the bottom rope and kind of slide across. I would just hit the apron and fall to the floor. <laughs> there was somebody, I don't know who it was. It could have been AJ Styles. It might have been John Cena. This is going back probably 10 years. But I feel like there was somebody who did that move, who jumped and like slid under the bottom rope, and they went like clear to the opposite apron. And we like were, we were, I think we were watching. We're like, he is going to go straight out of that ring. He didn't, of course. But it looked like they were just going to yeah, go straight on through. It is always impressive to see that. I think it's, I don't know if it's Ember Moon or somebody does it where they jump up and they go under the bottom rope, but like face up and again. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe Ember Moon will come up when we talk about the the lasting impact of Undertaker and the, you know, the supernatural character. I doubt it. But let's let's even talk about this for a second. This is really one of the first, not the only one, but this is one of the first characters to do real serious what we now call wrestle magic. You know what I mean? Like you had your weird kooky characters, your missing links, your George and the Animal Steals. You had your great Kabuki or your great Muda who did the mist, you know, kind of the mystical arts of the Orient sort of thing. But hmm. we're one of his first major feud is against one of them is against the ultimate warrior and he's locking them in caskets and they're doing all of these things and the lights are going off and it's not the Papa Shango voodoo thing. 
No, the... I think I actually think Papa Shango is a good sort of juxtaposition to, to have here because I feel like with Papa Shango they took the idea of the Undertaker, you know, th- this initial sort of foray into Wrestle Spooky, and they said, well, let's just let's just go to eleven with that. Let's just have oh, yeah. a guy who is all the way magic, and as we saw. You know, it worked for a year or so. Uh, yep. No, no disrespect, certainly, um, to the good uh, Papa Shango, but it just, you know, the balance wasn't there. They they, they no. struck they struck a balance with the Undertaker that is incredible, and it mm-hmm. contributes to its his his lasting you, you know his longevity. Well, what I like about this is I'm always you know there is an alternate universe out there. Where Papa Shango worked, yeah. and the Undertaker Mark Calloway became the Godfather. I'd like to see that. <laughs> All right, everyone, I'd like you to climb on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, first WrestleMania. You know, oh, let's let's even go back even further because. I just like to I just like to imagine a world where Papa Shango retired Ric Flair. Oh no, sorry, not Ric Flair. (laughs) Shawn Michaels. Michaels. Sorry, I conflated the two because Shawn Michaels uh, retired Ric Flair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Shawn Michaels. We could go on and on, like with these alternate universes. Yeah, I know. Um, You know, early on it didn't last long. But the Undertaker and Paul Bear, when they would defeat jobbers, would put them in body bags. And That's then right. Care, put him in, zip the body bag up, then throw him. The Undertaker would throw the guy over his shoulder and carry him out. I seemingly forgot to about that. Bury him. Yeah. I, that's right. They did do that. That was creepy. Like, it was. I, I don't think I liked The Undertaker when he first debuted. I thought, I think I was scared of him. I was young, of course, at the time. Oh, absolutely. And he was meant to be a bad dude, obviously. But yeah, yeah I, I remember that. And actually, yeah, that creeped the hell out of me. I don't think I in, I liked The Undertaker. And I don't, this might even be his first, like, you know, face turn. But I don't think I really liked The Undertaker until his feud with Jake Roberts. Well, and that's the first time. And, and let's even just fathom that. Here is this character who is the mortician. He's, he's putting people in body bags. He's burying him. And it didn't take long like a year or two, they decide, let's make him a good guy. And not only does that work short term, he's a good guy for the vast majority of his wrestling career. The Undertaker character I know, like that time that he kidnapped Stephanie McMahon and nearly crucified her. Like, that was like the best good guy run of all time. Well... You're jumping ahead again. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And you're wrong because you feel <laughs> at that point. Uh, but I see what I you're thought. saying. <laughs> I see what you're saying. That was attitude. Attitude was different. Yeah. Um, his first WrestleMania opponent was this. I don't know. It's probably unremarkable. Super, super, super fly. Like I said, unremarkable. Yeah. WrestleMania seven. Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Ah. Uh, like yeah, not very. How many years did it take him to go from debuting to being at WrestleMania? Was he I'm there pretty, that same year? I'm pretty sure it's the first one. I'm pretty sure it's you know because 
November 1990. Well, the reason why I ask is because I feel like I feel like I heard this week that this was his 25th anniversary at WrestleMania. But if mm-hmm. he was starting in 1990 and it's 2017, that math he didn't don't wrestle check out. Rest- I'm pretty sure he didn't wrestle at WrestleMania 8. I don't have anything that says what he did at 8. Okay. I'm pretty sure 7 was Jimmy Snuka. Um, I think he was not... I don't know what he was doing at WrestleMania 8, but I don't think he was there. Okay. Um, you know, and oh, then wait. 9, of course, So wait, that would have been 1991 that he wasn't there? I think it's 92 he wasn't there. Oh, I was going to say. If it was 91, he could have been off filming the best film of all time, Suburban Commando. I was going to say Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, but that was Kevin Nash who played Super Shooter. Yeah, I'm talking about the bounty hunter who comes after Shep, being Hulk Hogan's character, in Suburban Commando. It's totally The Undertaker. Yeah, it was WrestleMania 7. He, let me see, what did he do at 8? Oh, I, I have this. I don't know why this was not in my notes. Jake Roberts, WrestleMania 8. Okay, makes sense. This is a this is a WrestleMania. I should probably watch again because there's some matches here. You know, the Bret Hart Roddy Piper Intercontinental Title match is really good. Anyways, sorry. Back to the Undertaker. Yes. So, um, but before we get to the, you know, he's he feuds with the Ultimate Warrior, locks him in a casket. Back when Ultimate Warrior was wrestling all the strange mystical people, probably because they were the only ones who could understand what he was saying. So, wait a second, though. He locks him into a casket. Is this the first casket match? No. I don't believe they had the cat. The first casket match. The first one I can remember is against Yokozuna, but yeah. I feel like it, there was one before that, but I could be wrong. Because I just remember all the all those vignettes of him building the biggest casket he's ever built yep. for Yokozuna. And I just sort of feel like, well, that means oh, they okay, must have had normal-sized caskets prior to that but i mm-hmm. he had one more according to you know quick google search the first one pardon me now we've got the thunder here yeah. in uh our neck of the woods it passed quickly if it makes you feel any better good um was kamala in 1992 okay 1992 against kamala all right so wrestlemania 1991 beats jimmy snuka survivor series that aired that that time. He beats Hulk Hogan for the World Wrestling Federation title. Do you remember this whole thing? I vaguely do. Ric Flair has defected from WCW and has come to the WWF. Um, and in this, I can't remember if it was Survivor Series or they had this one pay-per-view called This Tuesday in Texas. Undertaker, I mean, Ric Flair slides a chair into the ring, Undertaker tombstones Hulk Hogan onto the chair and beats him. He didn't, you know, and he doesn't hold it for a super long time. The belt winds up getting held up. This leads to the greatest Royal Rumble in history, in my opinion, 1992 Royal Rumble, which Ric Flair wins. Yes. Um, but uh, he's 26 years old, which makes him at that time the youngest World Wrestling Federation champion in history. Wow. He's 26 years old, and he beats Hulk Hogan, cheating, you know, 
heinous or not heinous, he wins the title. Undertaker, I mean, Hulk Hogan lost to lots of people, but did not lose the title all that much. He lost it to The Undertaker. So, And let's just take a moment to sort of have some respect for the fact that this is a 26-year-old dude who has just won the title of the WWF and who has this morose character who can't celebrate in the ring, can't really get break character and, and, you know, do the celebratory things Mm -hmm. that people do when those sorts of career moments come. And, you know, this is a young guy, 26 years old, but even at that time, he had his character together enough that he doesn't go out of character for that. At least not that I remember. And I'm I'm jumping around here. I'm looking at YouTube because I just now want to see what he... Yeah, he's literally just standing there. Like, he wins it. Paul Bear hands him the title. He stands there, and he's staring at the urn. Yeah. You know, want to talk about, you know, things... That's even something things. we haven't brought up yet is the whole power of the urn. That yeah. what, When I was a kid, man, like, when that whole that whole first run with that urn, like, that was... Like, I don't know about you, but like, I, like talking with your buddies, like, oh, what is in that urn? You know, it's not Aunt, uh, Aunt Margaret's ashes. What's in there, man? It's got Sister some sort Abigail. of power, some sort of thing. It controls him. It gives him power. It's what allows him to yeah. sit up, like, just shrug off pain. Like, I was buying it full hog and sale. You know what I'm saying? Like, I totally bought into the Undertaker gimmick when I was a kid. That urn was, like, the most – I wanted that urn. I wanted the power of that urn. It would make you invincible, man. Well, and then let's talk about the fact that they're, they, you know, Paul Bear and Undertaker – were a you know two parts of the same whole because they had to coordinate Paul Bear lifting up the earth. You know they had the whole thing, and again jumping ahead a little bit. At one point, Kama, who was Papa Shango, they steal the urn and he melts it down into gold chains, <laughs> and he's walking around wearing Mister T style gold chains that is supposed to be you know that was a storyline. After storyline after storyline, if you could control the urn, you could control the Undertaker. Right. Like, he was that sort of supernatural figure. There was not a man there until Jake Roberts. Until Jake Roberts. Because he turns babyface because Jake Roberts is getting in to the business of Randy Savage and Elizabeth. and, And, you know... One of his most famous early things, he didn't say much. This might have been even the first, you know, one of the first things he said besides rest in peace. Jake Roberts tells him, whose side are you on? And Undertaker says, not yours. Yeah. Two no, that's words. a great moment. Instantly, babyface, wrestles Jake at WrestleMania 8. Goes on to feud with Kamala, first casket match. And then that leads to, here we are, we can finally talk about it, seven foot seven, wearing a bodysuit with muscles painted on. Oh, yes! I love that bodysuit. Oh, man. And fur in all the right places. Okay, so I know that you, you are uncomfortable just thinking about Giant Gonzalez right now. But let me tell you, as a child... I was un I I didn't you know no context for anything but seeing this giant man in this bodysuit and fur just ah oh, it was the most I was uncomfortable 
Like, just like, I can remember as a kid just being like, I don't even want to look at that, whatever it is. I remember, and again, my, I can't seem to pinpoint exactly when I started. WrestleMania 9 is one of my first, I've said this a million times, one of my first big wrestling memories. But I remember watching the Royal Rumble 93 when Giant Gonzalez makes his debut and all of a sudden hears this monster. And, you know, you know that he's not, you can tell he's wearing something, but at the same time, this is unlike anything you've ever seen before. And, you know, he's attacking The Undertaker. And again, this is one of those things. One of the other things that The Undertaker did was he would get hit, he'd go over the ropes, and he would land on his feet. Yeah. You know, we were used to Randy Savage leaping over the top rope and gracefully landing on his feet. It was just like, he literally was, in many ways, he was like a cat. It was like, you hit him and he's going to land. And he's, you know, he was that horror movie villain where no matter what you do to him, he's just going to keep coming. Right. A great set of moves. And, and then there's, yeah, and then and then he decides, oh, I'm six foot ten or whatever he is. I'm 300 pounds. Let me walk across the top rope. Yeah, impressive. Yeah, I'm holding on to the guy, but I'm still walking across the top rope this size. So, um, but yeah, Giant Gonzalez, which leads to WrestleMania 9 and the chariot with the raven on it coming down through Caesar's I mean, Palace. You want to talk about outdoor WrestleManias. Some people really don't like them. They don't like, you know, the 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 light on the entrances especially for characters like the Undertaker. They feel like it takes, you know, something away from the mystique, from the mystery perhaps. But I got to tell you, WrestleMania 9, that chariot, that raven, that is to me an iconic image for the WWE oh, for the car- for period. It's iconic period. And it's it's a great look. I half expected when you saw how long that WrestleMania ramp was this year, I half yeah. expected him to bring it back. If he wasn't going to do the bike, bring back the chariot with the Raven and, you just, know. Yeah, just ride yeah. it down. I would have liked yeah. to have seen that. Because, I mean, in all fairness, they didn't do much for his entrance this year. There were no druids or anything like that. Um, no, he came up from the ground. That yes. That was the whole he came up from the ground like what halfway down the ramp, right? Because yeah, <laughs> eighty yards, man, that. eighty yards. I know. Uh, I and you. what I appreciated, and again, we're jumping way ahead. He went back down that way too. Yes, yes, he like, did. Because he wasn't going to walk that eighty yards. No, they were, you guarantee there was a car under there waiting for him. Monday Night Raw, episode one, main event. I will buy you. Chinese food the next time we get together if you can tell me the name of the guy he wrestled without looking it up another weird supernaturally kind of gimmick that totally didn't work a supernaturally gimmick that didn't work bald guy kind of had a little bit of hair uh was he wearing white wraps no he's not, not Bastion Booger He's not Bastion Booger. <laughs> you were throwing me off there because I was thinking Bastion Booger for a second, but he just doesn't no. have that supernatural gimmick. He wore black. Black, huh? Uh, execution? You might you might not even remember Damien Demento. No. No, sorry. 
Weird guy, weird dude. But yes, Undertaker versus Damian Demento is the main event of episode one. Like I said, just all of the big historical can we, moments. Can we just take a minute too? Like I, I was, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I mentioned this to Mrs. Manson the other night. I think it was maybe on Raw, you know, right after they had finished their video package following WrestleMania 33. So at this point, you know, we knew the Undertaker was retired and so on. Like I just, I. It just it just hit me, and this just sort of brings it up. Like this guy, this is a guy who has been there forever. Like you know, you say twenty seven years, one. but yeah, he's been there from. I know he's not hasn't been there since WrestleMania one, but you want to talk about guys who basically have been there from the beginning. Basically, mm-hmm. I mean WrestleMania seven is not quite WrestleMania one. I I grant you, but like he has been there. For so, like, in terms of my career as a fan, my career watching wrestling, yeah, he was there. Like, he was debuting. Like, I can remember his debut at Survivor Series. Like, that was, like, right after mm-hmm. I started watching. Maybe within a year or yeah. two. And now, for me, as an adult, to have watched on, on Sunday night, at WrestleMania 33, to have watched this man who gave 27 years to the business and mind you, you know, I wasn't there for parts of college or high school. There was a few years gap there that I missed, but I was there at the beginning of this career. And I have now seen the end. And mm-hmm. that is mind boggling to me. Cause he feels like one of those old guys. He feels like one of those original. I know he's not technically, but he feels like he's one of those original era of Roddy Piper, Hulk Hogan sort of guys, but they existed long before I got into wrestling. This guy yeah. started after I started watching, has been there forever, and I well, have and seen the bow tied on at the end of his... Like, you know what I mean? Like, that... Just to think about that, that that's just incredible to me. Really well, and incredible. You think, you think about a lot of the guys who are seen as his contemporaries. Shawn Michaels, Triple H, the you know, the guys at The Rock, Austin... They weren't there. You know what I mean? No, like, not that Triple long. H, Triple H didn't get to WWF until 95, right. 96. By then, Undertaker's a veteran. Shawn Michaels had been there for a while. You know, but and again, I think if we had been podcasting back when he retired, we would be having similar thoughts because, you know, I came into wrestling later than you. The Undertaker has been a part of wrestling as long as I have been a fan. And the fact that he started wrestling... Now, granted, you and I were not going to be one years old watching Texas Red on no. Southpaw Regional Wrestling or wherever it was that he was performing. But Pretty sure it wasn't Southpaw. He's He's been wrestling almost our entire lives. Yeah. So, which brings us to... Well, I suppose it doesn't bring us to... But we get to now one of my favorite taker moments of all. Royal Rumble... 1994, because that is the casket match you're talking about with Yokozuna, where he builds the biggest casket ever. And that is where pretty much every heel in the company has to come out to put him in the casket. And then he wakes up in the casket. Legitimately, maybe the scariest moment I've ever had as a wrestling fan is when he's like this. His head to the side, he looks like he's dead, and all of a sudden, his head snaps forward and his eyes open, and I like I probably needed a change of clothes 
as a 11 year old watching that be and you know and then he ascends all of a sudden he's there on top i remember as an 11 year old being like how the heck did he get up there they must have like a tunnel that he had to like go through the casket and climb up the tunnel and then and then he disappeared this was one of the first times he was gone you're reading something. I can tell. I don't. I'm have just. Your I'm full... just trying to. I'm trying to just get a little bit more context for that WrestleMania match in '94. I'm just reading a little blurb about it. Well, he didn't wrestle the Mania match in '94. Oh, that's not what I this meant. Was... I meant Rumble. Rumble. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, but because then all of a sudden, you know, and this is where part of me is awakening, and I remember collecting. I had somebody, some relative of mine who knew I liked wrestling, got me WCW trading cards. Now, I didn't watch a lick of WCW, but all of a sudden I have a card that's El Gigante, the seven foot seven wrestler who looks remarkably like Giant Gonzalez. And I'm looking at the card going, are they twins? Like, how is this? <laughs> and then it started to dawn on me. No, this is the same guy. He He didn't always wear furry stuff. You know, this is where you're starting to realize, oh, there's... There's some stuff happening in here. You know, I'm being told a story here. And that's that same thing. Because I remember reading Wrestle uh, WWE magazine where they're looking for The Undertaker. And there are pictures of him in his black and gray outfit running in, like, Central Park. And I'm like, I can't believe they got a picture of that. <laughs> How'd they know where he was going to be? <laughs> I remember looking at that exact same WWF magazine. And just being absolutely, totally bought in. Where is The Undertaker? When are we going to find him? When is he going to come back? Yeah. I was right there uh, with Leslie Nielsen. Well, and then Million Dollar Man comes out, and he's like, I've bought The Undertaker. I've done it before. And, I've you know, and by that point, I had watched the old tape to see his debut, and I was like, oh, my God. What have they done to my Undertaker? What have you done to him? And then he walks out and you go, wait a second. Because I like Brian Lee, who is the wrestler who was the fake Undertaker, the underfaker, but he didn't look anything like him. Well, you were a very perceptive um, 10-year-old because I will tell you 100% that Doc Manson, little Doc Manson, I saw the two of them staring off side by side in the ring with each other, whatever... Uh, event it was where that happened SummerSlam 94 and I was like seeing double I was like how can there be two Undertakers does he have a twin what is going on here I yeah. bought it hook line and sinker I was like 10 year old Doc Manson was like these guys are identical oh my yeah. god one of them's when got purple gloves one of them's got gray gloves <laughs> thank god or I wouldn't be able to tell them apart well, they, yeah, because they pulled the Mortal Kombat thing where let's give them the exact same outfit but just change the color. This one's Reptile. This one's Sub-Zero. Yeah. Uh, I mean, looking back at it now, okay, what was the guy's name who played the Underfaker? Brian Lee? Bri Brian Lee, who became part of the Disciples of Apocalypse biker gang. Now, you might have missed that because you didn't watch the Attitude Era. Right. But I mean, he you stood know, he, there in the garb with his hair over his face in such a convincing yes, manner yes. that he I, did a very nice job. Making they pulled it seem the wool over my eyes just by 
create just by keeping that hair in front of his face. I bought. I think. I think I did. I didn't really get it until they were face to face, and then I went, "Oh no, wait a second. No, fair enough. But still, it was a great story. Oh yeah, it was a great story. And again, you want to talk about iconic images and okay so we've got the raven that we talked about in the chariot we want to talk about okay not a great wrestler not a great match but him facing off against giant gonzalez just that image of him there with that skin tight sprayed on bodysuit thing uh airbrushed style muscle suit and now we're talking about the two undertakers side by side staring each other down in that ring like it just it, it's just it's that it's iconic. Uh, yet again, it's like it's a career that was just made for iconic moment after iconic yeah. moment after iconic moment. Well, and, and Kevin Owens has said that wrestling's about moments, not necessarily about matches. And that's what it is. You know, I'm looking it up. He didn't wrestle at um, WrestleMania 10. He wrestled King Kong Bundy at WrestleMania 11 because at this point he's feuding with basically everyone in the Million Dollar Corporation. They right. send out. Comma, they send out King Kong Bundy, and he's just taking them out one after the other after the other. Um, I think at some point around here, he's wrestling Mabel when Mabel won the King of the Ring and became evil Mabel, despite still wearing purple and gold, you know, get up and stuff. And what I find interesting is now, granted, you know, one of the things Taker is known for is like he had a little posse, you would call it. Backstage, you know, I believe they were called the Bone Skull Crew or whatever. And it was, you know, he's got that tattooed on his stomach, like BSK or something like that. And it's, you know, it's Kama, a.k.a. Papa Shango, a.k.a. The Godfather. It's, I don't know if Mabel was in there, but I think Rikishi was part of it at some point. So, you know, he just seeing all these people that he's winds up feuding with. I remember him wrestling Kevin Nash or Diesel. At WrestleMania 12. Do you remember when he had the mask? The Phantom of the Opera mask? You know, I saw an image just this past week of, you know, it was right after WrestleMania, the different sort of faces of Taker. Yes. And I had not, when I, I saw the image of the face mask, and I remember that now, but, but I had no recollection of it. No, and it, this was kind of, you know, I wouldn't say that, the you know, the, Every wrestling career has ebbs and flows. He had a bit there where he wasn't doing anything huge. And that was at that time. And part of it was he legitimately broke his orbital bone a la Austin Aries. And when he came back in order to protect it, instead of the Rusev plastic guard, he wore this kind of molded gargoyle style mask. It was like Phantom of the Opera, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but again, a different... You know, we talk about his career, you know, his career evolving. He never kept the same outfit for long. He always tweaked it a little bit. Um, you know, his next Let's big thing. Let's be thankful for that, because if he was still wearing the big, fat, black striped tie, uh, I don't think we ever could have taken him seriously enough to uh, no. have it cheering no. him on at WrestleMania after WrestleMania. No, he changed with the times. Um the big feud, the night after WrestleMania 12 and the debut of Mankind. Mm, okay. You know, I, now, granted, we don't have a huge number of boiler room brawls in wrestling today. 
No. But I remember I remember that match again. That's one of those matches that I remember vividly from you know from start to finish because it was like un, you know having never watched ECW, I didn't like it was something I had never seen before them fighting with that and then you know that is the match where Taker comes to the ring cuz the whole idea is you've got to get to ringside to collect the urn from Paul Bear. And he goes to the ring and he kneels down and reaches for the urn and Paul Bear won't give it to him. Right. Because this is the heartbreak of Paul Bear turning on The Undertaker and joining mankind. So how long were Taker and Bearer together then as, you know, a happy couple? We're talking probably 91 to 96. So five solid years Okay, for that particular run. Right. Um, but that was huge. That was a huge moment. And, and, you know, we don't talk a lot about the acting skills of wrestlers, but Undertaker sold it. Mark Calloway sold that like it was the biggest betrayal in the world. And, you know, not only did the Undertaker reinvent himself, you know, sort of changing his look, but like Paul Bearer, I feel like we haven't talked about him very much in this retrospective episode, but he was super key to those beginning years of The Undertaker. Again, that urn, we've understated it here. We talked about it a little bit, but like that urn was a key part of that character. Oh, yeah. And and that ghostly presence, that pale skin, the, those, those eyes, that voice of Paul mm-hmm. Bearer, like that was all excellent. And then having them be together and be this unit for so long, and then at this point now having him turn on Undertaker, I mean... Paul Bearer would go on to introduce and, you know, side with some of Taker's all-time most memorable adversaries, which also helped keep The Undertaker uh, fresh and relevant. So, you know, Bearer deserves, I think, a great deal of credit, especially through these early years. Well, and, you know, the only uh, comparison you could make in today's, you know, the art of the manager is kind of lost. Yeah, the only if thing Paul you can compare Heyman, would be like Zeb Coulter or something. If Paul Heyman turned on Brock Lesnar, except it happened already. They did that back in the 2000s. You know what I mean? And like, it's not like it's going to be the same thing as like, oh, Lana turned on Rusev. Well, that's a shame. We've seen that already. It's true. And a we fish can... was thrown. <laughs> um, yes. But... um Somebody should go back and listen to every episode and just count the number of times we've talked about that. It was. I feel like you want to talk a, about iconic moments. Oh, it's great! It's yeah. great. Um, but yes, Paul Bear turns, and then we get with that feud because that feud lasted. I'd like to point out, besides the title from Hogan in '91, five years have gone by, and the Undertaker has not won a single title. Right. He's not even really like, you know, I'm sure there were title matches in there. But even then, you know, we always talk now about, you know, Mania has always been, all right, who's going to get the title shot and who's going to get the taker shot. He's always been an kind of an entity unto himself in terms of whatever he's doing is important enough that it doesn't require a championship. Right. Um, you know, he, he comes back for Survivor Series 96. Now he's in the all black. Now he's got that kind of Ministry of Darkness look or what would become the Ministry of Darkness look. Um, he was in the first ever, obviously, Buried Alive match. Again, With they don't Mankind. have a lot of them. 
Yeah. But, you know, if, if you want to talk again, we can talk about influence The Buried later, Alive but... match at least came back several times. I was there. Were there any other Boiler Room matches? No. That yeah. was if. Because that was a Mankind. Right. There's probably Correct. not going to be another House of Horrors match, whatever in God's name this is going to be. Thank Yeah. Well, thankfully, hopefully. Anyway. There might not be another Ambrose Asylum match. You know, but again, try to imagine what Mil Muertes would be if not for the influence of The Undertaker. Those, Incredibly that's... fresh and unique. <laughs> yeah. So, so he comes back and then WrestleMania 13, he wins. He actually does get a title shot and beats Psycho Sid for mm. the for the championship. Now we're starting to get into those er- that era where I think I was absent. Um, yeah, this is 97. This is the Attitude Era, Austin. You know, WrestleMania 13 is, we always, t- everyone talks about Austin Bret Hart. Undertaker Sid is kind of the afterthought because Sid stunk, and so the match wasn't great. But, but ask Mrs. Manson what she thinks of The Undertaker since she's there. She's not. Or she's it's gone. Just Oscar. Okay. Oh, well, we can ask what Oscar thinks. Um. So, yeah, so then... You know, after this, Paul Bear comes out and says, Oh, I know your secret. I sound like the guy from Family Guy. I don't even yeah. sound like Paul Bear. Yeah. I didn't want to say it. <clears throat> he, uh, but he breaks out. He's got this deep, dark secret. It's not locked in the lockbox. It is not the McMahon family lockbox. But Undertaker's got this secret. And unless... Undertaker takes Paul Bear back now that Undertaker's got the title. He will reveal the secret of whatever it is. And as it turns out, the secret is the Undertaker set the fire that killed his family. And part two of the secret, as we learn in the first ever Hell in a Cell match, Undertaker, his brother is still alive. Now, and we get the day. Have we heard about any of this prior to this feud? Did we know that his parents were dead? Did we know that their home, home had burned down? Did we know that he was supposed to have a brother before this time? I am pretty sure no. I don't ever remember it being talked about. I don't ever remember that. It's... So this was just a sudden uh, expansion yeah. of lore in canon with just this this expository dump of information by Paul Bearer, I presume. Yes, this is new. You know, the ultimatum of revealing the deep, dark secret, having burned down the family funeral home, killing his parents and ostensibly his younger half-brother. However, Bearer claimed to have proof that his brother was alive and well, though horribly scarred. And burned. Mm. It's amazing how that horrible scarring has healed over time. Hey, <clears throat> psychological scarring is just as bad as physical scarring, Doc Manson. I'm not sure that's what um, he meant, but yes. Well, that's what it wound up becoming. That's it, if we wanted to have the retrospective of Kane, it was that the scars, he, he saw the scars. He was the only one that could see them. Mm. That's deep right there. DC yes. Thank you. Um, and yeah, Hell in a Cell, Kane comes back. It's 
gotta be Cain. And uh, Cain returns, and that's becomes the big feud. Uh, Undertaker pulling a Bret Hart card, refusing to fight his brother. And except till WrestleMania 14, the gloves come off. We have the first Undertaker-Kane match at WrestleMania 14. Now, at this point, I don't think anyone's talking about streak. You know, at this point, he's 6-0, 7-0. They might mention that he's undefeated, but, you know, it's not for some time that we hear about the streak. But then we get the first ever Inferno match. Want to at talk WrestleMania? About no, but with this feud became the Inferno match. Sure, which I've always sort of thought as, I suppose, as Kane's specialty match, but yep. still Undertaker being there for the first one. So, so far, and again, I'm more thinking about all of us who grew up with the SmackDown video games and made Inferno matches that featured no one who had any business being in an Inferno match. Casket match, Buried Alive, Boiler Room Brawl, Hell in a Cell, and... Inferno match. Five very popular gimmicks, gimmick matches, Undertaker, part of all of them. Now, you sort of um, already asked, you sort of talked about this a little bit before, and I might be jumping too far ahead, but at what point does the streak enter? We've got the a mind ways share. to go. We've yeah. got a ways to go because really. I feel like I hadn't heard of the streak. For so, like I, I, I came back to the product watching I – mean, again, this is jumping ahead. Maybe like WrestleMania 20, I think. And mm-hmm. even at that time, the streak was not yet a thing. You, I think it's the New Age insiders who have talked about it. The first person to really talk about it is Edge. Okay. So we're talking way down. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because got, we've got the entire American badass – gimmick to go through before we get there because what we're at to now is a certain hell in a cell match versus a certain Mick Foley. Yeah. You know, I just feel like these are the, those, these are, these are those years that I was not present. And so I feel like I've missed quite a bit of history here. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first hell in a cell match you know which one we're talking about, right? The one. The one. Not the yeah. first one. There were ones before that. <clears throat> this is the match 90. <clears throat> wait. Eight. So wait. There were Hell in a Cells before this match? Then? Yes. Because the first Hell in a okay. Cell was <clears throat> Michaels versus Undertaker, and that's the one where Kane shows up. Oh, that's right. We just talked about that. Sorry, folks. Through the magic of editing, you might not realize this. Uh, but there was some thundery business going on around here. We lost our internet connections, and we we're actually, in fact, picking this conversation up uh, several minutes later. So, uh, sorry, I'm getting my brain back in gear here. So, yes. So then after that, later on, after f- fighting Kane at WrestleMania 14, he then goes on later in, this would be 98, Wrestles Mick Foley in the Hell in the Cell, the thumbtacks, the choke slam through the thing, throwing off the thing, Jim Ross screaming, all of that. Now, at this point, this is a very different Undertaker, is it not? This is the beginnings of Ministry of Darkness Undertaker. We're not far off before the heel turn, but at this point, he is still a babyface. Mick Foley was, I believe, 
Hmm. I would have to think about that because Mick Foley had the shirt on, and that's usually like he he would that was after he went corporate and goofed off with Sako. So I would have to go back and kind of figure this out in context where we were. But you know, Taker, I don't believe was a heel at this point. Um, you know, because the Ministry of Darkness happens later. That's the next big thing to talk about. But this is, you know. Taker just continuing to put him down because McFoley keeps getting up. And if we ever do a McFoley retrospective, we'll spend even more time on this match. But of course, but you know, Undertaker again, you want to talk moments. One of the biggest moments in wrestling history. There's the Undertaker right there. I mean, there's a moment that you cannot get away from, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that one is a sort of moment that will never be allowed to be recreated. Uh, and yet it happened before there is that footage, which of course they will continue to use as appropriate. And it's just amazing because again, it, it is one of those moments that literally I don't think they will ever recreate. Like there will be nothing that no. matches the intensity, that brutality, because they know now how incredibly dumb that I mean okay and you can sit here and argue me oh Shane jumped off of a hell on a cell last year at Wrestlemania the same exact it was not the same thing you look at the the air mattress that Shane McMahon actually hit underneath that table coming off of that hell in the cell versus what Mick Foley did to his body in that match yeah and uh, it's just it's, it's not comparable at all no this is the first time you know what I mean? This is this is the first time no one had ever seen anything like that. Like we again, we had seen stuff in ECW. People had fallen off of balconies and all of this. But in many people's mind, Undertaker threw him off. Right. Like, and this was you know WWF television, and by God, he's killed him. I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that's Jim Ross's exact words. Is by God, he's killed him. Because it looked no, like he died. Not, by God, he's been broken in half. I think that came after. By God, he's killed him. By God, he, you know. Maybe. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the crazy part about this is, like, that's not even the part of the match that really injured no. Mick Foley. It was the choke slam like, through the cage. Right. With the like, chair hitting him in the face. Guys. With the chair bouncing and hitting him in the face. That was a pure accident. The rest of this was executed so well that, I mean, don't be wrong, it was still dangerous. He probably would have still ended up with hip problems 20 years later. But, like, at the moment, that wasn't even the dangerous part. No. No. So now we get into Ministry of Darkness, which is a departure because now this is not... Undertaker as evil mortuary guy. This is heel Undertaker... As cult leader, this is where he crucifies Stephanie McMahon. This is where he chains Steve Austin to a big Undertaker symbol. This is where at WrestleMania 15, he wrestles Big Boss Man in a Hell in a Cell match and literally hangs him from the cell by the neck and a harness, which if you watch that match, it's so perfectly obvious when they slip the harness on. It's not even funny, but still. (laughs) <laughs> you know, this is this is the birth of the, you know, this is the birth of Viscera. This is the birth of the Acolytes, 
all of that sort of thing, you know, happens at this time. This is the birth of what would become Naked Midian, which probably graciously you don't remember is when Midian started wrestling in only a fanny pack. Awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. So, you know, again, total departure, brand new character that set in with the times of the Attitude Era. This was something new and different. This was definitely edgy. You know, this is not edgy in terms of putting people in body bags. No, but even still, like, the thing that I love about this period, because we're getting right up to the big departure, but, like, this is the darkest, most intense Undertaker I think we've ever seen. But it's still, it's still very much... You, you you can look at point A and understand how we got to this point B. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, this evolution of character has been exactly that. It has been a, a very well laid out, you know, progression where we see how that original character has ended up now here. Yeah. And, uh, I, just, I like that continuity. Well, and now you said we get to the big departure. And the biggest thing I got out of my research... And I don't know if it's true because this is you've got to. It depends on your trust in Kevin Nash, because Kevin Nash tells a story as to why Undertaker suddenly became the biker. All right, if you believe the story, the Undertaker. I have I have no reason to doubt Kevin Nash. He's always been honest with us, open. Truthful, in which case, I, 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 he's a man of his character. His wife loves gold. Go on. His wife loves He does, yes. She she loves that gold. Undertaker was leaving. He was going to WCW. And so this character was a departure so that when he went to WCW, because Vince was not going to let him take the Undertaker name, obviously, so he was either going to go back to being mean Mark Callis or he was just going to go under his real name, Mark Calloway, but he was going to be the biker character, not the Undertaker character. Now, part I find that fascinating because... Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, he developed this biker character to use exclusively in WCW, you're saying? So, he, he wasn't planning on coming back... To WWE, if you if you believe F, the whatever. story, yes. Now, my the the one thing that gives me pause here is why in the world would Vince McMahon let him transition the character? Why would you give him the opportunity to try a new character that he's going to wind up using elsewhere? Because well, see that that part doesn't make sense because what it would have to be is he must have been planning on leaving. And he developed this character to debut in WCW, but then decided, nah, I'm coming back to WWE and convinced McMahon to debut the character there. And that's pretty much what happened is he had this character. He started to transition away and at one point tells Vince McMahon, because Vince, remember, Vince McMahon is the higher power. You know, that whole crazy moment, speaking of moments, The Undertaker was a part of. Um do you remember that? Do I need to spend a minute on that? Don't know what you're talking about. The Undertaker, as part of the Ministry of Darkness, is referring to he is a follower of the higher power. 
And so he is okay. he is taking orders from this higher power and it they do this huge big build and you're trying to figure out who in the world could possibly be you know, controlling the Undertaker. It's not Paul Bear. Paul Bear's with him. It's not going to be Kane. Are they going to debut some new guy? And it winds up being there's this big, you know, this guy in a hood and the hood comes off and it's Vince McMahon. And you wind up seeing this is where the corporate ministry happens, where the corporation and the Ministry of Darkness join forces against Steve Austin. And it's, you know, you and generally considered to be one of the biggest letdowns in history because you were expecting something amazing and it's Vince again. And he's, you know, pulls the thing off and he's got this big grin. It was me, Austin. It was me all along. And so. Wait a minute. So why did Vince McMahon want Undertaker to kidnap his daughter? Well, having just watched the match where Vince McMahon fights, his daughter and makes her pass out by choking her with a lead pipe. It, evil Vince, evil Vince okay. hits, okay. evil Vince hates right. everyone. Needs no further explanation. So, Got it. Um, so yeah, Got so it. apparently at this point, you know, the character starts to change a bit. And at one point undertaker on camera, Vince is trying to tell him what to do. And he's like, I don't need you. In fact, I don't even need WWF and walks away. Like, walks out. Now, he was injured at the time, so part of this was to explain that. You know, that's another thing you learn reading his Wikipedia page. This guy got injured a lot. This is not Mr. 3000 in terms of, you know, he got injured quite a bit. A lot of these taking time offs was he, as part while part of the Ministry of Darkness, he had his hip replaced. So let's just stop there for a second. He did? He had hip replacement surgery in, like, 98, 99. So he's at the halfway point. Really? According to Wikipedia, he's at the halfway point of his career, has hip replacement surgery, and then wrestles another 15 years. If not more. That's amazing. So No wonder he has hip problems. Yeah. So no, no wonder he can't walk down an 80-yard ramp. Wow. So, okay. so again, so whether or not it happened, he comes back and he is the biker gimmick with the American flag... You know, this is where the Brothers of Destruction, um, you know, kind of starts out with him and his brother. They're finally on the same page. They kept going back and forth, um, you know, between the things. This is him with the red hair, the long red hair, which I hated. But let me tell you, let me stop here for a second to tell people, because Bill Neville and I go back and forth on this a lot, why I love the American badass character. Some people hate it, hate it. But let me tell you why I love it. He took everything that made The Undertaker The Undertaker. And he twisted it so it's still him. You know, it's still the mystique of The Undertaker. But now he's riding a bike out and doing all of that stuff. Like, he, this is as big of a change as you could possibly get. For that character. This is Stone Cold turning babyface and playing the guitar. Or turning heel. Minute, he though. turned heel to do that. I, I'm with you, but I just want a little more clarification in what you said there. How, how is this still the same character? I regard? suppose this is where the man and the talent 
took over as opposed to the character. Up until this point, you could make the argument that we loved the character. Now, all of a sudden, okay, yep. this is probably much closer to who Mark Calloway was. You know, I don't have in any of this research the whole idea that this guy ran the WWF, WWE locker room for 20 plus years. He was the judge, jury, and in the, if need be, executioner sort of thing, you know, backstage. He was the leader. He ran the show sort of thing. Um, and that it kind of was that. You know what I mean? It was he was still the Undertaker. You still had Dead Man Inc., but he came up with a new finishing move. All of a sudden, he breaks out the last ride powerbomb. The tombstone is now just one thing he does. This is when old school starts because now he's allowed right. to be more personable. He's allowed to show more emotion. So he grabs the guy in the armbar, turns, walks towards the turnbuckles, turns to the crowd and yells, old school, and climbs up and does, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, yeah. it was such a departure. I mean, for the record, I'm with you. I love the departure of the character. I, I love that he came back, did something different, still recognizable. Yeah. It's some some part of him there, you could still see it. Um, and the thing that boggles my mind about that is when I look at the American Badass, I look at Big Evil and so on and so forth, that whole thing, in my mind, seems like that was a big sort of transition, a long period of his career, but it really no. wasn't. It didn't last that long at all. Because we're talking like WrestleMania, you know, at WrestleMania 15, he's – again, I'd have to go back and see what he did at some of these. I think he was injured for some of these um, middle WrestleManias. But by WrestleMania 18, he's having his WrestleMania moment with Ric Flair. So he's big evil then. And by WrestleMania 20, he's back to the Undertaker that most people know and love. Right. You know, did – he didn't right. wrestle at um didn't wrestle at 16 and wrestled Triple H at 17. So, you know, we're talking maybe 2 or 3 years. I don't even want yeah. to talk like two I don't even want to talk about his WrestleMania match at 19. Do you remember that when he wrestled nope. Big Show and A Train cuz he was supposed to team with Nathan Jones? Yeah. Supposed to. That was terrible. You know, and and, and again, yeah. we, he but he did. won. But this wasn't all. So that's this wasn't important. all gold. You know, we could talk about when WCW invaded and DDP was stalking the Undertaker's wife, like in the bushes, literally in the bushes, hiding and stalking his. Uh -huh. You know, um, I do want to talk about when Big Evil got eliminated from the Royal Rumble by Maven. <laughs> and then beat him up and threw his head through a popcorn machine. I do want to talk about that because that's a, that was great. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, again, we're talking about. I remember the moment where he's wrestling Jeff Hardy in a ladder match. He's heel. He's wrestling Jeff Hardy in a ladder match. He wins, but Jeff Hardy. This was like Jeff Hardy's here I am moment, and Undertaker gives him a fist bump in the ring, like as a. Mm. 
you got you you got Made something, it, kid. kid. And again, this was a moment he he went back and forth between heel and you know good guy and bad guy so easily, and that was it. Like that was all it took for him to kind of become a good guy again. Um, and then WrestleMania twenty. Yeah, so let's just hop on there for a second. I don't know how long the Undertaker was gone, how long he disappeared for. Uh, I was not watching. When I came back, it was in the lead-up to WrestleMania 20. I did not see Big Evil. I did not see the American Badass. I didn't see that version. He was just gone. And all I knew leading into uh, WrestleMania 20 was there were these rumors. Kane was proclaiming that The Undertaker was going to return. You know what I mean? And they were going to have this match. And I remember everybody was just, will he be the dead man? Will he be uh, the American badass? There was this this buzz about it. And that was when I, again, I was coming back at, I was just getting back into the product. And I, I can remember that because that was the thing that I think I... You know, I bought the most into the buzz leading up to that event. Obviously, also the title matches for that. Well, that was that was Kane had buried the Undertaker alive to lead up to that, and so Kane was proclaiming that he had killed him. He's dead. He's gone. You're never going to see him again because he buried Big Evil. And now, all of a sudden, I'm pretty sure I'm thinking of the same thing. You're getting like, oh. The gong, or oh, the raven call, or oh, right, right, right. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that Kane was saying the Undertaker was coming back. It was like vignettes that were implying that he was going to be returning here and there, a little sprinkled in, and yeah, that was again for me coming back. That was one of those storylines that totally, I totally bought into it. I was totally there. I was invested, and then to be watching WrestleMania twenty, the first big pay per view event that I was watching, coming back. To wrestling, and for him to come back as the dead man with the pomp and the circumstance and the and, and all of the druids and, and the special effects and the lighting and, and just to to be thinking back to my childhood as a wrestling fan to see this guy who I recognized who was different now his outfit was yeah. not the same you could see that there was it, it was informed by that previous period that I was aware of although I hadn't seen he had the leather duster now he had a slightly different hat he had the fingerless leather striking gloves instead of the old school black I'm sorry gray or purple Like, I could see that character that I remembered from my childhood, but this was new. This was different. And it was, I I loved it. And, you know, honestly, again, they just, they've, they've always, he's been around for so long and they've always treated him so well. I'm not talking about him, but like the character, as a fan, it was just so great to be coming back at that moment. It It was great. I remember... When he buried Paul Bear in cement, because I remember that because the Dudleys had kidnapped him and they were threatening to bury him in cement, and he essentially saved him, but then said, "No, you're a liability," and then buried him in cement himself. And you were just like, "Man, that's now, cold." Was that the canonical end of Paul Bearer? Did he ever return I after that? I feel like he did. You know, Paul Bear. I call him Percy Pringle. I don't actually think that's his real name. Um, 
Paul Bear, the man, died in 2013. Um, and so he, he was brought back to, as part of the storyline there, which we'll talk about. But I don't know that that was the end. I feel like we saw him again in some form or fashion, but it might have been. I really don't remember. Mm. Um, no, and we're getting either. to the point now where this is kind of around the time where – now, granted, he wrestled quite a bit, but we're talking the WrestleMania feuds here now is, you know, because now it's yeah. Randy Orton at WrestleMania 21. This is the legend. I will say, I feel like around this time when he returned as the dead man, yeah, okay, maybe the streak wasn't a thing yet, and now we're just getting into the WrestleMania really being, you know, his legacy, the thing that defines him. I feel like, though, at this time also, I'm not sure how much of a full-time schedule he worked from this point forward. He was around forward. a bit. You know, and he's always been a Especially guy. Especially in those early years. And he, he's always been a guy. And again, maybe this is to the credit of uh, Vince McMahon and World Wrestling Federation Entertainment. It's not a bad thing to have a guy like this who comes in for a couple of months and then leaves for a bit. You know, people are ragging on John Cena for it. I don't want to see John Cena 365 days a year. I enjoy seeing Cena for a while. And now that his feud with The Miz is over, I don't need to see him again. Until, you know, a couple of months later. So it's great having a special yes. attraction. And I think that was it. I think maybe the streak wasn't a thing. But when The Undertaker came back as the dead man at WrestleMania 20, he was now in total special attraction mode because, you know, he feuded with JBL. Over the SmackDown title, he participated in a last ride match where you had to throw your opponent in a hearse and drive away with him. Um, but again, mm -hmm. uh, yep. but we're talking Randy Orton, the legend killer out to beat the ultimate legend at WrestleMania 21. Had Orton won, the streak really wouldn't have been a thing at all. And I'm seeing here that this is the first match where his opponent, um, explicitly said, that he wanted to face him at WrestleMania to end yeah, his undefeated streak. So I guess credit Randy to Randy Orton. Orton. This is the beginning now of the error of the streak at WrestleMania 21, the point at which The Undertaker is now 13-0. Yep. and 0. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, but again, what I wrote down, kind of what he did in between, he had an interesting little bitty feud with Muhammad Hassan. That was the last thing Muhammad Hassan did before leaving WWE. The only thing that mm -hmm. I find it interesting there is according to Wikipedia, um, because what happened was Muhammad Hassan had a bunch of cronies in masks attack Undertaker. A few days later, terrorists bombed London and in the backlash, because this is again, 20, the early 2000s. So, that whole thing, the backlash about that led to Muhammad Hassan leaving. Had it not been for that backlash, they were planning on giving Muhammad Hassan a world title. Now, I, I don't remember huh. Muhammad Hassan that much, but I don't remember ever thinking he was world champion level. Uh, I don't think he was world championship level, but he it was the right time for that sort of character I, to get massive amounts true. of heat. That's true. Uh, WrestleMania 22, Mark Henry. The um, the Undertaker took part in the first ever Punjabi prison match against 
the less said about Against that, the better. The Great Kali. Because the Great Kali was injured. Oh, that's right. He he ended up getting injured. So it was yep. Big Show. I, because let's have a Punjabi prison match without the guy from Punjab. That's the ticket. <laughs> I love WWE. That was good stuff. Uh, you think they would have just scrapped yeah. the idea. He won the 2000 Royal Rumble. Beat Batista at WrestleMania 23 to win a title. Hmm. Then we get to WrestleMania 24. He's wrestling Edge. He wins the title again at WrestleMania 24. This is, again, this is another one where this was the streak was now the thing. The title was almost secondary to the streak. And by this point, we are now in pretty much. We are in total special attraction. I only come back for... Now, wait a minute. So what year did he win the title from Batista? That's 2003. So he wins it in 2007. Okay. Then he wins the title again in 2008. But this is a dual branded show. So he's winning the SmackDown big gold belt. I'm pretty sure at this point. Uh, okay. So was he around more full time while he was the champion or no? Yeah. So, for example, he beats Batista for the title at some point, he's wrestling, I don't remember who, Edge cashes in money in the bank and beats him. So then okay. he disappears for a little while, comes back again to go after Edge, wrestles him at WrestleMania 24 and beats him. But he's wrestling relatively full time. Um, WrestleMania 25, obviously, Shawn Michaels, dare we say, one of the top five matches. And that's really... Me, that is to me when, you know, he really was, this was the first time that I was like, oh man, WrestleMania, Undertaker, this is it. Like, this is going to be like the star attraction of the night. I don't know if that's more to the credit of the Undertaker or to Shawn Michaels. I think you're talking about two guys who they're not necessarily in their primes, but they're two of the best to ever do it. Like, right. You know what I mean? So, I mean, at that point, that was Shawn Michaels, Mr. WrestleMania, having these killer matches year after year. And he's sort of, you know, he's he's transferring that heat to The Undertaker. Because obviously the following year, the rematch with Shawn Michaels yep. being where Shawn Michaels is retired by The Undertaker. And at that point, yeah, that full Mr. WrestleMania sort of mojo has now been fully invested into yep. The Undertaker, who would go on for... You know, a few more years. I'm going to pause at the 2010 Elimination Chamber because this is the card where the pyro goes wrong and Undertaker gets legitimately burned by his own pyro. I don't remember this. He's coming out to the ring. The pyro goes off. He gets hit by it. He suffers legitimate burns to his body and pretty much... Tell I don't remember if he tells the referee or something, but the guy who's in charge of the pyro for that is fired and leaves the building before Undertaker can get back because he might have killed him. So I'm pretty sure nice. he communicates to the back somehow, get this guy out of here or he's going to be in trouble. Hmm. Uh, Alrighty. Yes, retires H. Consummate professional that Retires 
HBK at 26. Again, another great match. Oh, Paul Bear does come back. Where? Uh, somewhere around 2011. Um, Paul Bear return. You know, again, he's he's injured. He takes some time off. He comes back with Paul Bear, who immediately turns on him to join Kane again. Come on! <laughs> so, well, in all fairness, he did bury him in cement. The struggle continues. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, you know, but again, takes another hiatus. You know, he he's at the point now where it's like he's wrestling a one month program, wrestles at a pay per view, and then comes back. Um, this was great. He comes back after the 2011 Royal Rumble, the Raw after the Royal Rumble. Are you paying attention? Yeah. He comes back. He picks up the mic, and before he can say anything. Triple H makes his return, also from injury, and confronts him. And they don't, I don't even think they say a word, but in that moment, you know, oh, they're going to fight at WrestleMania 27. And again, you want to talk about moments. Like, that moment of them coming together in that ring, staring each other down, no words. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, and this is the first time he he beats Hunter and doesn't show up again until 2012 to re-challenge Triple H. So Remind this, me why he challenged Triple H again? I'm pretty sure it was... I think it was because at the end of 27, he wins, but Taker is carried out on a stretcher. Right. Well, not, yeah, sort of. Or, you know, almost does. But, you right. know, it says, you know, the February 13th episode of Raw, Triple H refuses The Undertaker's challenge, so The Undertaker has to accuse Triple H of living in the shadow of Shawn Michaels. And so then Triple H says, fine, but it's going to be hell in a cell. And that's yeah, and we, this is the year that The Undertaker gave us that god-awful mohawk yes, look, right? Yes, this is the mohawk look. That is... Again. That is the... I'm going to say the first reinvention... That didn't work. It, you're right. It did not it work. It was the first time he tried a look, and it was just bad. At that point, he was starting to look his age. You know what I mean? Or maybe... Oh, yeah. This is the first no, time... correction. This is the first time he's looking older. He's looking beyond his age. Yes. You know what I mean? You're starting to get this feeling that, oh. And, well, okay. and, and you're getting to the point here where you're beginning. This is where the streak took on, I think, even more meaning because he could have been done. When you see, when, when WrestleMania 28, when that match ends and it's Hunter and Michaels and Taker and they're sitting there, yes. arms around each yes. other, look, you think they're done. Like you, even the commentary, I, I can remember end of an era yes. is what they kept saying that night. End of an era. Yeah. And they could have ended it there, undefeated streak into the history yep. books, never, never ended. Like, again, there's an alternate dimension where that happened. Yeah. And maybe we would have been better for it. I don't know. Well, and again, you can play that game. You know, I even did this in one of my nerd DC WrestleMania songs. Because the next year is CM Punk, WrestleMania 29. And for my money, that might be where I would have done it. And again, hindsight being what it is, probably the best move. But I say in the song, 
If Punk had been the guy to defeat The Undertaker's streak, it's possible he would not have wound up leaving. Like, that's a big thing to give him. So, I will say, I remember him being angry that he wasn't in the main event, I think, even that year. Well, and, so and I think again, he felt like it was a demotion to be in the match with The Undertaker. It's, it's, but I think that's crazy. It's possible that he would have been whiny CM Punk no I, matter well, what. Well, I mean, that's hearsay. I have no idea what the man actually thinks. That's yeah. just what the dirt sheet said he thought. I mean, who knows if that's true? Yeah. But, I mean, I think that's actually where, you know, people like this year were saying, and this is not quite the same thing, but people were saying, oh, AJ Styles versus Shane McMahon, he deserves better than that. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? That's a special attraction match. Yeah. Like, that's perfectly important. And to some degree, it's even more important than sometimes those championship matches are. Um, the Undertaker, I think, he was he's the epitome of that sentiment. You know what I mean? Yep. For years, for decades, really, he was beyond challenging for championships. He was he was he was a title for others to try to claim. Exactly. Uh, uh yeah, so yeah. sorry. No, that's fine. Th- but and and also you get into that like Paul Bear dies. The man, Paul Moody, I think his name is, actually passes away and CM Punk uses that in the feud, like he's disrespecting the legacy of Paul Bear. Um, but he wins, Taker wins. He actually winds up wrestling a couple of Raw and SmackDown matches against the Shield, teaming with like Kane and Daniel Bryan. They hit him with a triple power bomb, I think, through a table, and he's gone until 2014, where he's wrestling Mr. Brock Lesnar. And now we get to kind of, you know, we're at the point here where, you know, we know the recent history. Lesnar at 30, mm-hmm. the streak is over. Gone. Bray Wyatt at 31 in a match that he didn't have to do any build for. He just showed up. Yep. Like it was all pre recorded. Uh, the other matches with Lesnar, which includes the one where he's laughing, that popular. You know. Oh, that's a good one. Um, and then it's Shane at Shane. 32. He comes out to cut the weirdest promo at Survivor Series it's possible. He gets eliminated from the Rumble. When Taker comes out and he's like, I'm back full time. I'm digging, you know. Oh, yeah. And then right. you never see him on SmackDown again. Right. Um, And then Sunday. Sunday, Sunday. Now, can I say, I've watched Ric Flair's retirement. I've watched Shawn Michaels' retirement. You've seen plenty of other career-ending matches. Yes. The taking off of the... I, rem, I You see Roman Reigns up the ramp or whatever they did. They showed the replay. And then all of a sudden, you cut back to Taker in the ring. And he's got his coat and hat back on again. And I remember thinking, why would you do that? And while yeah. I I did appreciate the symbolism of him taking him off and leaving him in the ring, I did love that. It was super, super classy, the whole way they did that. But it was a little bit like, a part of me was like, is he in a harness now? Is he going to ascend to the heavens? Is he literally going to be taken out on a helicopter <laughs> and just fly out of Orlando? I mean, is- I will say I had that initial reaction. I thought it was strange he had the coat and gear back on, but... You know, 
that weekend, as we know now, like in NXT, there were several talents who were getting ready to move up to the main roster, but the WWE made it a point not to show any sort of those swan song sort of farewell moments in NXT. None of that occurred. None of those lingering camera shots, no nothing. And it becomes clear because they're saving it for The Undertaker. That whole sentiment for that weekend, yeah. they're saving it for that and him taking off that coat. And get, and once again, we've, we've talked about this several times throughout this conversation. The Undertaker's career is a series of moments, and they finished it with, again, an incredible moment, an incredible piece of imagery that we are going to remember and be seeing videos of for many years to come. A very mm-hmm. meaningful, uh, symbolic sort, sort of gesture to send him out. Yes, it was great. And the whole thing with, you know, he, you, you know, somebody mentioned, you know, you see a moment where it feels like he kind of puts the character to rest. He's there, the gear's there, he kind of closes his eyes, and he opens them, and it, you know, it's almost like, okay, the character's gone, now it's Mark, he goes out, he kisses his wife, Michelle McCool, he does the final fist pose, and then sinks down, and, you know, classy move by WWE, they left the stuff in the ring. They're literally taking down everything from the set and they're just leaving it there. So they handled it beautifully. Uh, all in all, this man is a seven-time world champion, a seven-time tag team champion. And I just so just so you know, Kane, The Rock, Big Show, and Steve Austin were his tag team partners. Wow. Uh, He won the hardcore title. Not that it matters. He won a Royal Rumble. You know, he wrestled for, like you said, 27 years. That's 15 titles in 27 years. But it goes back to the fact that you don't need – he didn't need it. Titles were secondary for that character. And again, you want to talk about things we're never going to see again. Unless we're going to get to – John Cena's going to get to that level maybe, I guess. But no one else is going to be that. Everyone else needs to be defined by a championship. John Cena needs to be defined by the fact that he's a 16-time world champion. Right. I mean, we talk about another wrestle spooky character, somebody who I think has a great deal of energy that you know the Undertaker once had. Bray Wyatt, um, a modern example. He's a guy though who you just hear it around. He was a guy who for so long needed a championship to legitimize him. Yeah. Uh, which he finally got. And don't get me wrong. I guess early on the undertaker legitimized with, with a championship relatively very early on, as we talked about tonight. But, um, you know, I think that I think honestly think that's the closest that we've come in the modern era to somebody who does not necessarily need those championships mm-hmm. based off of the strength of character. And well, even still, I don't even think I th- he's a 10th of that presence. Well, and I also think it's worth mentioning, you know, the people go back and forth on whether or not wins and losses don't matter. The Undertaker in every promotion, which, you know, includes a couple of little things in random, you know, Japan or whatever, he won 68% of the matches he was in. And that, you know, and that's... 
counting losses by disqualification, losses by countout or whatever. Like, you know, you want to talk non-pay-per-view TV matches, he won 72%. This guy won much more often than he lost. Bray Wyatt is not that guy. So, you know, Bray Wyatt does need a championship to legitimize himself. When you've got that character like The Undertaker and he wins so often... Now I'm just curious what Bray Wyatt's record is. Bray Wyatt's won 37% of his matches. That seems right. He's the anti. He's the anti-Undertaker. But he can control well, maggots. He can control maggot pictures. Well, he, he Right, pictures. Pictures of... We'll get into uh, that when we actually talk WrestleMania. All but right. I mean, okay, so we've had an incredible episode here. Looking back at the life and times of one Mr. Undertaker. Like, I, Mr. Undertaker. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm glad that we did this, man, because there were several moments here, like thinking back and like really thinking about what the Undertaker meant. I, I, I mean, I don't care what he means to the business, honestly, but what he means to me, like, you know, again, as that longtime fan, having been there at the beginning, having now seen the end, like, I don't know that there's anyone else in this business who I'll ever be able to really say that for that will mean as much. You know what I mean? Like as a kid, yeah, I loved I loved Hulk Hogan. I loved Macho Man. I, I loved a bunch of different characters. But none of them were there like The Undertaker has been there. None of them reinvented themselves, kept being relevant, kept even in modern times being the guy that you looked at. Like there's... I can't think of anyone else who's even on the radar of filling those gigantic boots of his. The only person um, I could compare him to is Shawn Michaels, who was yeah. and Shawn Michaels has been gone for seven years. Right. You know what I mean? Like he's been gone for seven years. So it's a it's a different story with him, but it's the same kind of thing. Plus, I also and I don't want I do want to wrap this show up, but two quick things. Number one. Here's one thing that I think helps. Tell me something that you know about Mark Calloway. He's married to Michelle McCool. Yes. Other than that, and he likes Texas football, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I don't know too much about the man. That man has kept kayfabe alive this whole time. And I think that's part of it, because when you're talking about you said it's Mr. Undertaker, we just spent an hour and 45 minutes talking about Mr. Undertaker because we don't know who Mark Calloway is. And I don't want to talk about Mark Calloway. I want to talk about Mr. Undertaker. Sure. Second thing. Whenever they induct him into the Hall of Fame, should they include anyone else in that class? Or should it be an entire show devoted to Mr. Undertaker? Well, I think you probably have to bring some other people in, but I appreciate the sentiment that you are expressing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he is—you know—he is a giant of that industry. You want to talk about your Mount Rushmores? Oh, he's just like on it. Well, no, he's not. And the reason why he's not is because just as he towered over championships, he didn't need them. He's bigger than Mount Rushmore. He is the Mount Everest. I'm serious. Ooh. He is the Mount Everest well, of the industry. He towers over no, Rushmore. Stop. Stop. We're ending it there. 
That was genius. That was genius, genius, genius. You, you've been working on your little graphic stuff. Market that because you were exactly <laughs> right. He is the Mount Everest. He is not Mount Rushmore. He is the Mount Everest of professional wrestling. Doc Manson, you could not have come up with a better way to end this show. And I thank you for that. And I thank Mr. Undertaker. I would like this episode to be called Thank You, Mr. Undertaker. Okay. <laughs> that we can do. All right. Anything else you would like to say, Doc Manson? We will be back, I am sure, at some point. I'm heading up to the Great White North uh, for a little vacation in a bit. But we will be back to actually talk about what happened in the world of wrestling at some point. Uh, but anything final on The Undertaker you would like to say? I wouldn't. I would never talk about The Undertaker again. You cannot beat what you just said. I think it's time that we head off into that good night. Just like Mr. Undertaker. I agree, and in honor of Mr. Undertaker, I am going to break out my giant Gonzalez furry underwear. And <laughs> I am ready oh, to Oh, God! Go. I don't need to think about that! He is Doc Manson at Doc Manson. I am DC Matthews at DC Matthews NAI. Until we meet again, my friends, may you all rest in peace. Just sleep well. And we will see you around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm.